Good day to you. I'm Sean Keaveney. This is um, another episode of my creative cul-de-sac. It's... I won't tell you when it is. It's, it's sometime at the start of autumn. It's mid-afternoon. And um, this is the first one of these that I've done since leaving Six Music. Don't start. Don't start. It's not... Um, it's not a Revelations podcast this, you know. This isn't... Uh, Sean Keaveney spills the beans on his time at the BBC. Who did he make love to in the disabled toilets in 2006? Nobody. Right? That wasn't me. You should get me mixed up with Russell Brand, though. Um, anyway, I'm not going to belabor the point. I say that a lot on, already on this uh, podcast, I think. But um, it is weird being self, open brackets, un, close brackets, employed. It's weird having a bit more time during the day sometimes. Though, you know, like a skip outside, it fills pretty quick, doesn't it? Um, uh, you know, went to the supermarket today. And one of the biggest excitements of the week for us as a, as a couple, my wife and I, was we went to one of those stores on the high street last week and we bought a new washing-up bowl. The one that we had before was gunmetal grey and it had a slash in the side uh, that was at an angle, so it was like a sort of slow puncture. You could fill it up and you probably had about three good minutes before um, you were down to an inch of water. And we put up with that for about a year. But last week, I don't know what it was, something about the that sort of real seize the mark, that real um, carpe diem feeling that you get when you've lost a job. You start fuck it. Let's go. Let's treat ourselves. We can't really afford it. You're not working anymore. Bollocks to it, I said. Come on, woman. I'd be quite um, forthright when I want to be, you know. I said, come on. I grabbed her by the hand. She said, what are we going to do? Go to Claridge's for lunch. I said, no. We're going to go and get a new washing up bowl. And uh, she fell to her knees and wept. Because it was a symbolic moment, you know. I was essentially saying, fuck you, world. I'm not going to be cowed by the fact that I've technically lost a job. I'm going to still go out and spend money because I'm going to make money. Uh, my God, did we get top of the range? We spent three ninety nine, And it's a sort of a lighter grey. And I did, I've not tape measured it, but it's I'd say it's approximately 18 inches by 15 inches. And boy, does it hold water. Very much like this podcast. So anyway, that's where I'm at. Uh, my wife is upstairs at the moment in the top room doing some admin. So I've been relegated to our bedroom. There are no children around for the next two hours. So I'm making hair while the sun shines. And uh, it's an iPhone and laptop special today. Sean Keeney's creative cul-de-sac. For those that are brand new to the, the show, what the fuck are you doing? This is definitely not the first one. Listen to some of the other ones. But if I must quickly pray, see, I go through my 20 years worth of creative detritus, things that the ideas I haven't got away, Bring try and bring some of them off the page, bring them to life. Um, a bit like drilling down into the Arctic Circle and releasing all that methane. So, you know, that's it. It's me and my ideas. And then we have a, a guest and the guest does the same. Uh, but as I say, aforementioned, it's an iPhone and laptop special today. I'm not going into the top room, uh, into the special box full of notebooks because I can't get in because my wife's doing admin. So I think that explains that. And what I'm going to try and do today is... Oh, the other thing is, is well, you might hear from my inner voice. This is something that popped up recently. Been listening to a lot of WTF podcasts by Mark Maron. I love him. I love his voice. I met him once. I interviewed him once. He's a terrifying man, but such a great interviewer. Uh, but unfortunately, now for him, my inner voice has adopted a kind of cartoon version of his voice, uh, almost like a sort of sort of cheap ass Goodfellas gangster. So whenever I Whenever I do something questionable to me uh, or that I think is a bit low in quality or a bit disingenuous, my inner voice might pop up sounding a bit like Mike Marin in Goodfellas. So just to let you know that. You fucking... What the matter with you? It's a Thursday afternoon. You're sitting in your fucking pants talking to no fuck. I'm not talking to no fuck, actually. This, technically, yes, it's not on a platform yet, but this will eventually be heard by millions. You fuck, you fucking wish. Well, yeah. What you gonna do anyway? With your 
time now. You got fucking family. You got three fucking kids sit there with no bread in their mouths because you lost your fucking job. Uh, in answer to that, Mark, radio stations evolve. It's because you're fucking shit. No, that is not why. What you gonna do for the money now? This fucking podcast? You think that's gonna pay for the cracks financially, keep you out of the poorhouse? Yes, I do. I think I've got an audience. And so that's this and a few other things, spinning a few plates, Strictly 22. You know, I'm gonna be fine. I'm, I'm excited. You're fucking terrified. It's what you are. You should be. What you wanna do? Oh, here we go. You need money? Yes. We all need money in this world, don't we? Don't you know what you gotta do with those pretty legs, don't you? Gotta get down to fucking Southampton Dock, get on your fucking knees to the sailors, and start opening that pretty mouth. Okay? Listen, that's enough. That is, I've heard enough from you. <sighs> One of the things I thought I might do, actually, this idea of written it down on my iPhone pages, um, try and find the actual bit that I said. I, I just had written down. Fifties uh, rock and roll song lyrics euphemisms explained. Um, so I'm going to do a bit of that. I've also found a lovely little chunk of um, something on my uh, on my computer, which is a, a potential stand-up show entitled "Content Not Working." Hmm? Hmm? I'm raising my eyebrow while I do that. Hmm? Hmm? Not content. Content not working, so we'll do a bit of that and some other bits and bobs. Um, so I, I've opened the pages on my iPhone and I've been presented with a couple of great ideas. I think can't remember writing them down. I've written porn film close to the bone, speaks for itself. Really think that could go. I've not obviously, I've not um, searched that title. On Google for obvious reasons. I don't go on Pornhub because I don't look at pornography. So I can't tell if it's already been made or not. Maybe you could check and get back to me. And I've written this as well in my uh, little ideas section. The little engine that could. Which is, a, if you've not got that, if you've got young children, you, you're you looking for a birthday or Christmas present for them. It's a lovely little book. A lovely little illustrated book from, I think, the 40s. American book. Uh, about a little fire and a little uh, train engine and he's trying to get up a hill and it has some help and it's very sweet it's all about helping each other which resonates very strongly at the moment doesn't it this culture the little engine that could became part of the Avanti West Coast train franchise that's what I've written there not sure how that would work the little engine that could get stuck at Wigan North West I suppose um, because of um some issues with the, um, you know, the refrigeration system on board. Written, got a little joke for you as well. What about this? Oh, I tell you what. Oh, went a bit uh, Al Pacino then. Didn't I? Oh, oh. You're talking to me. Oh, oh. What do you want to do? <sighs> that was a little excerpt from Heat. Anyway, there's this joke. Oh, I'm watching this fantastic box set of programs about dried fruit. Yeah, on Netflix. Um, I just finished the last of the current series. C-U-R-R-A-N-T. If Ben could just... Thank you. A little drum roll and a spladoosh there at the end. So, you know, there's that kind of thing rolling on, which I think is quite high quality. Because that's what this podcast is all about. It's just ideas that you write down that are never going anywhere. There's no way that there is ever going to be a Netflix series about uh, dried fruit. And no comedian worth their salt would ever say this joke out loud. It's too shit. Uh, the porn film, Close to the Bone. You know, it, this is bullshit that needs to go somewhere. I used to have a radio show, don't anymore. Okay, cut me some slack. You know why you've not got a fucking radio show no more? Because you're an asshole. Fuck off. Leave me alone. Okay. So, what about this, right? So this this is, I've got, I'm get, get the guitar. I've actually got, uh, Johnny Marr sent me this guitar. It's a beautiful Yamaha with a built-in reverb. I'm serious. Oh, it's lovely. So this... 
I don't know if this will get taken down by the internet police because technically speaking, if I I don't know what the publishing implications and the copyright implications are. So let's let this live online as long as it can before it gets taken down. I suspect it will eventually. This is the first and it could be the last in my series of Sean Keaveney explains 50s sex euphemisms in rock and roll. And today it's going to be shake rock and roll. Okay, so remember that how that goes. It's something like, um, I'm like, this is the second verse. I'm like a one-eyed cat peeping in a seafood store. Remember it. I'm like a one-eyed cat peeping in a seafood store. I can't look at you till you don't love me no more. Remember it. And then it's the chorus. Shake, rattle and roll. You know, uh, Bill Haley wasn't from Lang. He wasn't Lancastrian, I don't think, was he? I think he was from uh, Colne. That's like still Lancashire, isn't it? So that's the lyric, but we all know what it really means. Uh, they had to codify it to get played on the radio, but also because it sounds better in that kind of parlance. Because the reality is. I'm putting my penis into your vagina I said I'm putting my penis into your vagina I'll have sex with you then I can't look at you after We're going to have some sex 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 And then you I will be upset. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because I believe in God. Yes, that, that's it. That's that shake, rattle, and roll. Demystified for the 21st century audience. Uh, I enjoyed that. <laughs> that could be a series, or as I say, might just get taken down and completely deleted from this particular podcast, which either way I'm I'm quite comfortable with. And just oh, fucking turn that off. If you could email me and tell me how, how to silence that, I'd love love you forever. I really would. Um, so finally, for this bit, I am going to um, talk you through this idea that I had, which was called content not working. Yeah, I think it's a good idea, actually. You know, John came up with it, but I worked it out, you know. And I think that the basic idea was the more stuff we get, I mean, it's, it's like philosophy 101, isn't it? It's just so basic. But the more stuff we get, the, the technically the richer we become as a society, the unhappier we get, you know. The more scrolling we do, the more time we spend on our screens, the more time we spend listening to fucking idiots talking on podcasts, maybe. No, not that. Because that's actually good for our mental health. You fucking would say that, you prick. Shut it. You know, the more all that happens, the less happy we are. So I'm just going to read this out because I, I, uh, I don't really remember this screed, but what I've written under 
the basic banner of content is not working is this zero hours contracts no job security atomized communities secular and godless closing pubs closing libraries closing amenities like banks and post offices automated supermarkets automated tellers online shopping social media facebook perfection instagram perfection increased urban living less green living work longer hours children on screens adults on screens not noticing crumbling institutions expect to work till 70 expect to get a pay cut expect things to be worse for our kids than for us nothing we can do hopeless no political leadership power in the hands of billionaires who don't give a fuck about you caps lock Plastic in fish, plastic in you, hot seas and droughts, incremental erosion of the NHS, BBC, incremental erosion of our daily living standards, incremental erosion of our expectations from society, exponential increase in our expectations of life through things and experiences, impatience. Pay now, get it now. Drop by drone, same day delivery. Our reward sensors overloaded, no patience. Living for the ding of the phone, living for like like some Pavlov dog, hooked forever onto the internet, never away from work or socials, not even on holiday, constantly on, rated by strangers, shamed or lauded, constantly, no debates, just anger and censure. Our ancient needs for fresh uh, soil, sand, sea, vistas, wood smoke, rambling, nowhere, conversations, tactility and peace, ignored or rammed into a seven-day holiday that you must enjoy before you go back to work safer than ever healthier than ever sadder than ever it's a bit radio isn't it a sickness of expectation exhaustion fear do i seem well i've written here with two question marks <laughs> so that's a screed isn't it and then i sort of say what would a podcast like this be like clearly this is a litany of negatives about the modern world and we don't want to pump yet more negativity into the system that's a good point sean quite the opposite so is the podcast me me Sean, each episode starting with a little bit of written comedy, a bit Seinfeldy. This I can riff on some utter idiotic shit like espresso and tonic uh, or something, and then follows a chat on location, preferably because obviously I just need to get out of the fucking house with someone who can either shed light on a problem we face or someone who is combating the march of modern horror with an antidote. Well, I think that's excellent. I really do. I mean, there's more of it. There's just the screed goes on. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking this day. At the end of it, it says, uh, "You can look stuff up easy, like Finland is the happiest place in the world." And then I put, "Ha, happy finish." That's the, I was trying to bring it down to some kind of dick joke or a, a mention of an erection, obviously. The right, we look into the rise of discontentment. I think there's something there. I think there's something in that idea. Do we speak to Jakinda Arden, the New Zealand Prime Minister, about the happiness index? Sean Keebney asks. There's something in that, isn't there? Content not working. But as is the problem with all of these ideas that I have, it's a fucking great idea, but it would take, I would say, a, a hundred hours of work to make that a brilliant hour-long piece to take to Edinburgh or something, and I can't. Be fucking asked. So there you go. It's the eternal problem that I face, isn't it? Well, like we've done demystifying 50s sexual innuendos in music. We've done content not working. Uh, some uh, shite off my iPhone. Um, I think that there's a pretty rich scene that we've struck today. Um, all that remains for me to do now is to close the mic and to say it is time for our very special and esteemed guest, to crack open their notebooks on today's Sean Keaveney's Cultural Cul-de-Sac. Reversing unbeknownst into my cul-de-sac today is a woman who is a decorated, a celebrated and respected journalist, author, broadcaster, podcaster, documentary maker. Oh my God, she's won awards for her fearless reporting, been in countless terrifying situations, not least 
working as a graduate alongside Michael Gove at Radio 4, here to riffle through the piffle with us today. It's Samira Ahmed. Hello. <laughs> no, you do make it sound a bit scary, don't you? I know. It's just me and intros. It's my comfort blanket. I always like to soften people up with it. And I think that, and, and I did mention Michael Gove there. I think I need to clear that right up from the start. Is it really true that you were a graduate trainee? Yeah, it is. Do you know? I've somehow I've got the magazine I edited for edited for him. So yeah, I was at Oxford University at the same time, and I was been involved in the debating society. In fact, Boris Johnson was president of the union when I first went up. And um, no, Michael Gove, you know, was um, thoughtful and um, intelligent, and he was president of the union, and they had a magazine at the time where you would write articles on the different themes of the debates. And I I, I was very involved in student journalism. So I put in a pitch with Toby Litt, who's a novelist and poet. And we edited the Union magazine of the term that he was president. And it's a really good magazine. We've got articles on things like, you know, AIDS and the panic around, um, you know, the sort of whole Clause 28 stuff that was going on. Um, and the cover headlines were money, fear, sin. So it was very good. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, here we go. Have you got it? Look at that. So this is from 86. Stuart Lee wrote, um, oh no, that was in the other magazine I edited. Stuart Lee Did wrote um, music reviews for us. But I've got a Um, I've just got, because we commissioned a, oh, here he is. We commissioned a cartoon of him from one of my friends. Is this a cartoon of gold? Yeah. So he was all—he he was all always quite caricaturable, even in the mid '80s. It's quite good to know. Yeah. But this is the thing about this, right? The, the, what, the way I every 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 time I'm on my bike, I'm thinking about Sean Keaving's cultural cul-de-sac, right? And I'm always thinking of a new metaphor. And today's is this: is with with, with creative people, we only ever see. Samira, the tip of the iceberg, right? We see the finished bits, we see the bits that got through, we see the the the, the, the sort of creative moments that that made it through that uh, that evolution and that survival of the fittest. I'm interested in the other seven eighths of the the iceberg, the unseen, the stuff that you jot down and you put to one side and you think, you know what, I think that's quite good. It might be after half a bottle of decent wine. But this is the stuff I want to get to today. So I can see that you're, are you in an office now? Are you in the place that you do most of your work? This is my home office. Well, let's, do, let's delve in. We've mentioned notebooks. Let's just, let's just delve in um, anywhere and, and try and pluck something out that you've, you've noted down that, that we could just have a look at. Okay. Well, I haven't got it with me because it's in a box that I don't know. I think it's been destroyed, but I had a pink box and I used to keep unfinished things in it. And I started a novel when I was 17. And it was a young Sherlock Holmes novel. And it was inspired by a dream I had after I went to see young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear. I had a slight crush on Nicholas Rowe, who, the posh boy who played <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Um, and actually, the plot was really good. So I dived into the, the chapter I wrote was right in the middle of the book where he's discovered that his rich businessman father is involved in trafficking working class girls for prostitution. And he's abandoned Oxford and his degree. And he's he's gone off to London. And I've turned up with, because obviously I put myself in it, um, he's got a female friend who's at one of the colleges there. And me and Watson turn up to try and find him. And so the whole premise of the novel was going to be about his father's involvement in in um, trafficking, sex trafficking. I, no, this is, I find most interesting because but what age were you when you were writing this down in the, in the 17 novel? 17 okay i grew up with second wave feminism although i don't quite know whether the whether the plot about um sex trafficking came from because i don't think it was being as widely reported as it is now but i think i had this sense that he would discover he was connected to that world of where money was being made. And, you know, and it's funny because it's so topical now, isn't it? When we talk about the story about behind the fortunes of country houses and how it's all come from slavery and no one wants to talk about it, even though it's real. Um, and that was essentially what that book was going to be about. It was about, you know, a son discovering that his family's wealth and reputation is built on something incredibly exploitative. That's what, but that kind of is the whole part. I mean, and you won a Stonewall Award for, for reporting on, on sort of, Similar things, didn't you, back in uh, back in the day? 
Yeah, well, it was um, it was the targeting of lesbian women for so-called corrective rape, and it's and you know there's a lot of homophobia everywhere. Um, but South Africa also happens to be um one of the worst places in the world for rape. Something like a quarter of women were raped by the age of sixteen, and so this was a uh, the phenomenon of um men targeting lesbian women, raping and killing them, um and um. Oh God, it was just it was such a terrible thing. And the families were so brave and the activists were so brave. And also because South Africa had one of the first modern constitutions written, you know, written in the 90s, which enshrined gay rights in the constitution. So it was all more heartbreaking that the reality was so different from the dream. And it, 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 I, I, how does it make you feel to reflect on, on the situation now? Because we seem to, even in this country, we there seems to be almost like a new epidemic of violence against females. Do you know, it is, isn't it? I mean, one thing about getting older is because we've seen it all before, I guess you don't, you know, you never give up. I mean, I'm, I'm the trustee of a charity called the Centre for Women's Justice, which was set up partly by Harriet Wistrich, who was the woman who stopped John Warboys, the taxi rapist, being let out. And they litigate strategic cases to try and end violence against women. So I think you just find ways to use your energy to try and make things better. And... Yeah, they've they've achieved some real landmarks already in in the legal cases they've been fighting. They've got apologies from police forces who've ignored stalking and all the rest of it. And you meet these incredible women who are survivors, and they want to help others. I mean, I've met Sally Challen, who was originally jailed for murder, and um, then subsequently um, released on appeal because of the whole issue of coercive control now being understood. And her son, David Challen, is a great campaigner. So you know this. I know this sort of sounds like really grim, but there's really good work being done. It's all you can do. You just have to kind of keep at it and try and make things better. You're right, though. It, it doesn't. Yeah, that's the, that's the. I think the, you know, a, a lesson I'd like to pass on to my kids is that you've just got to keep going. My my granddad had a saying: "Keep going with head down uh, when times got tough." And I think that's basically the lesson for us all, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned music before, <laughs> and you said I, I'm good at playing other people's music, but like you know, I don't create my own. So, are, you, are we are we saying that through if we looked you know exhaustively and forensically through all your notebooks, there wouldn't be even a stanza of of self written lyrics? No, I once tried to write a tune, and I just thought this is rubbish. <laughs> you know, um, but I love playing music. I've been playing the piano since I was seven. I I'm like I'm weirdly in the opposite of Paul McCartney, where he can't read music, but he's a great musician. And I was taught to read music and I can play music and I'm competent. I got to grade eight. You know, I passed all my exams. I love music. And I even discovered some Beatles songs by playing them from the music songbook, having not heard the records yet. Oh, yeah. Okay. I discovered Mother Nature's Son that way, discovered uh, Fool on the Hill that way. They're lovely songs, um, even when I play them. And, um, but it, you know, it's just um, the joy comes from from playing and listening, but not from, I just have nothing but... Um, I, you know, having been a teenager in the 80s, um, although actually a lot of the music then was terrible, the later part of that decade. But, you know, the late 70s, early 80s was really exciting. And I had all those great albums. I've always loved listening to music. And again, see, I express myself through words. So I have got you Go the review I wrote. Oh, this is it. So when I was, um, let's see, I would have been 27 or just about 28. And it was... Uh, 1995, and I had just been posted to Los Angeles as um, LA correspondent. I was actually doing stand-in for Christmas, and then I was going to go back the following year and do a longer stint. And the day I arrived, Jeremy Cook, who I was relieving, said, oh, I've just heard on K-Rock that Oasis are playing the Viper Room tonight. So I thought I'd go and cover it for Radio 1. So you want to come? And I went, yeah, because I was really excited by all that at the time, and I had all the records and the single, you know, Blur versus Oasis stuff. So I remember being really jet-lagged, but going... And it was exciting because the Viper Room, if you've ever been, is very small. So there was, you know, I don't know if there was even 100 people in there. And, and I came home and, um, and I, wrote, I wrote this two-page review, which, I mean, you know, there's actually very few crossings out if you look. Yeah, you've, you see that. So that was almost It's quite like, neat handwriting. Literally handwritten, I see. It wouldn't yeah, happen and these I, days. Yeah, and I've done a word count because someone told me how many about how many words a review should be. I thought I'd submit it to NME or Melody Maker. So I've done the maths and it's just under 600 words. Well, you've very, that's on the nose really, isn't it? It's usually around between five and eight, 800, isn't it? So yeah. can you give us a, a, a you know, a, a little taste of, of what, you, what you thought of that? Yeah, I'll yeah. give you the start. I think this is quite good. In Britain, they fill Wembley Arena. In Los Angeles, 
preppy couples in the Viper Room were discussing whether to bother staying on after the Zen Cowboys and Chicken Hawk for Oasis. The intimate club was packed out with a mix of industry and, in quotation marks, decision makers. Um, a hybrid batch of goths and alarmingly convincing Damon Albarn lookalikes. They'd all heard the hype, but they all needed convincing. They set it up beautifully there. It's nice. It's not bad, is it? And and so, what were your what what was your ultimate opinion of that particular night? Do you remember you didn't meet the band or anything, did you? Well, I thought I thought Liam had real stage presence. I liked his voice, but. Yeah, I think I think I kind of came down on their side. Although I did point out something about I, I had this whole thing about behaving well and being, you know, when people act like rock stars when they're not actually that well known yet. Um, as even a Beatles reference, I read you the end of this. But if overly packed with insiders or not, it's clear that the gig served as a useful illustration of the uphill struggle the band faces in the states. People had come expecting the Beatles. They saw and heard something more akin to Slade. Prescient that. Uh, without the acoustic wonders of Noel's gentler numbers, um, I Am the Walrus, though, was um, even as beautifully as it was performed, didn't arouse this lot. And Liam walking off even before the band had finished playing, muttering thanks under the din, um, thus totally inaudible, suggested little attempt to tackle the situation with professional politeness. You see, so I, but then I say, or oh, who cares what the Yanks think anyway? For the tourists who found themselves here and hopefully for a handful of yanks with brains it was a moment out of history like seeing the Beatles last ever performance at the cavern it may not have been their greatest but it was for anyone who was there so I was actually I think slightly caught up in fandom at the time I think I'd be more cynical now but it felt exciting it's me you're about to hear an advert now if you want to listen to the podcast ad free and my Friday radio show, all you got to do is sign up to the Patreon if you fancy, not if you don't. Uh, but if you do, the link is in the episode notes. Carry on. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I love the fact that you come across quite matronly towards the end of that. You know, it's that sort of like, uh, and, and, and like you say, what's professionalism, you know, politeness doesn't cost anything. I remember I was very late to the game with Oasis. My first ever girlfriend was best mates with Gwigsy's sister. And we used to get constantly asked, do you want uh, backstage passes for Empress Ballroom? Do you want backstage passes? And I'd always be like, no, I think the shit, I think my band's better than Oasis. And, and it was utterly embarrassing. But eventually I came around to their charms. But I remember watching them. I think, I think they were doing like the MTV Europe Awards or something. They were the biggest band in the world. And Liam sort of walked on, on stage. I think he had two pints and a, a Parker on, obviously. And he sort of walks to the middle of the stage. And he does this like... The only way I can describe it is in northern sort of uh, vernacular. He does this like really long stringy greeny out of his mouth 
onto the stage. And that was, I was completely done with them at that point. I was like, I don't care how rock and roll you think you are, doing a greenie in the middle of the stage, somebody's going to have to clean that up. And that disgusted me, Samira. Never really forgiven him for it, to be honest. Um, let's let's have another delve, shall we? Have you got um, another bit of uh, notebook fantasy for us that we can peruse before we... Oh, yeah, here's a story idea. You know, I, I, I wrote this seven years ago and I've pitched it quite seriously. It hasn't got made. And now the whole world has changed. You can't, I don't think you could do it the same way. Um, Kings and Queens of Drag. I wanted to do an archive on four and I also wanted to do a TV doc about the, the tradition of drag in Britain because... Yeah. Shall I read you my pitch? This is exactly what this okay. is for. Because somebody might hear this now and say, that is a good idea. We're going we're going to we're gonna nick that, yeah. The British have always loved drag, but why and what does it represent? From panto and working class musical to post-war TV and film comedy and the all-male public school tradition behind Monty Python's Flying Circus and the modern lesbian world of drag kings. Samira Ahmed applies the same very personal love of drag that she brought to her take on Britain and Westerns and riding into town. This will be a journey through the past century of cross-dressing, exploring its many manifestations, styles, and its relationship to sexual and class politics. Lord Baden-Powell loved playing female roles so much he made his own dresses for school shows to Steve Nallen, whose relationship with Mrs. Thatcher on Spitting Image began when he was only 22. Along the way, she looks at the different worlds of the glamorous female impersonators, the faux queens, women dressing as drag queens, to ask what drag reveals about our identity and our attitudes. I watch it. I watch it. Why couldn't that be made now? Is it because of... I don't know. Because it, well, it's so... Um, thanks to RuPaul's Drag Race and things like it, it's become so in mainstream consciousness, hasn't it? I think it's become more complicated now because um, because um, of the trans identity. And, and so... I don't think you can just do yeah. a documentary about drag in the same way unless you really made the parameters, the parameters very narrow. And I always feel um, un, unqualified often to, to blunder into a, a very complicated world like that, especially as sitting in my own privilege as a middle-aged white guy, you know. So I, I like to, yeah, what have other people explain to me what I should understand about it and, and just... And it's, it's, got, it's got more complicated, but I think that was a good I pitch, it was wasn't beautiful. it? Do you do a lot of that then? Because th this is one of the reasons like, this, yeah. this exists, because I, I, just, I just basically spend 80% of my creative life writing pitches that never go anywhere. Yeah, well, you know, I say this to a lot of people. I say, I feel like when I die, I'll be on my deathbed saying, oh, there's that pitch I've got in. Might, might still be made. <laughs> Imagine the last words. Um. Did you just get the Channel 4 commissioner on the... She's gone. I'm afraid she's gone. Um, but this is it. You, you do, you know, with front, you know, you, you, with front row that you do so beautifully and how I find my voice, you've got a, a brilliant podcast yourself. Do you... as Your technique as a, an interviewer yourself, um, you've just done a Nobel Prize when you're about to do Ridley Scott. Uh, that's just this afternoon. Right, so you, do you write questions and then shy away from asking them ever? Do you do you go? I, I really wanted to ask that. No, I try to write questions. I try to write questions I'm going to ask, but I might think really carefully about how to phrase them. But I, my big thing is I do the best research. I do everything. Um, so with a big interview I've got coming up, um, you know, I have been playing all the records reading books in fact I bought I ordered this so I mean I don't know when this is going to go up but I'm I'm interviewing Paul McCartney uh, at his book launch I was just going to ask you about heroes and there's yeah. one and I actually ordered you know there's Royal Mail stamps I found out when I went to buy to post up the other day and she said oh I've got some Paul McCartney stamps would you like them I said yes and it turned out that one of the things you could buy is a book and it's got a little it's got a whole article with the stamps about his career and his picture and I thought you know what it's only six quid I'll get it because I'd love to see what they've said it'll be a different thing it won't be the same as just reading a biography and I'm not interested in reading salacious details about people's private lives because it's about his lyrics okay that's the great thing it's it's about the lyrics not about the music I've been watching one two three the, the lovely Disney plus series which is great I watch an episode a night and so I'm going to be complimenting that. So you work out what's the information I need, what stuff do I want to absorb. I've got all the lyrics tracks, which are on a Spotify list. I've got it downloaded on my phone. And every time I'm walking anywhere, driving anywhere, I've just got them on rotation. So I know them. So the second a song starts on the radio, I can recognize it. So 
God. All that knowledge You're is basic. Immersive. And then yeah. I've, I've already, I started drafting some questions over breakfast this morning, but I've already got some questions and I'll put them into a thing, but I'll boil them all down. So the questions that I go into that event with will be the right questions as far as I'm concerned. And because that's the problem, isn't it? If you go in with too much, you then you become bamboozled and you ask the wrong things. And you've got to think about what does the audience want? Because it's going to be, you know, the, it's going to be the Royal Festival Hall. So there's going to be a physical audience oh, there. Wow. Plus it's being live streamed. Bloody so hell. unlike just interviewing a person for a podcast, um, you're actually, everyone is in the room with you. So you've got to be, it's got to be for them. Engaging, it's yeah. not, it's not just an indulgence for me. I've got a job. And that will also mean that I hopefully won't get too freaked out by the fact that I'm in the room with Paul McCartney. Well, you know, the other thing you've got to do is you've got to say, do you, do you know that Sean Keaveney does quite a good impression, you know, of... I mean, if you want, you could ask me a question now and I'll reply as Paul. Well, give us one of your questions, you know. Oh, no, I, oh, I can't give you one of my questions because that, that, then it'd be out there. You know, well, that's very interesting, Samira. Uh, your version of Fool on the Hill, I've got to be honest, is like a little bit better than what me and George did together in, at Abbey Road, you know. So, yeah, but we, I've done him a couple of times, but it's always been a desultory experience in a sense because it was, it's always been one of those eight-minute interviews. You know, you get like, a, not, not necessarily a junket. I was going to ask you, you must have interviewed him, yeah. But not, not, not in a satisfactory way. And we did, and, and as you well know, I'm sure you must have been in similar situations. Sometimes if you don't get your full a full journey with somebody you get like maybe 10 minutes what they tend to do is give you the same answers they're giving to everybody else that day like Dave Berry from Absolute will get the same you know what I mean so I'd be very interested to see what what you draw out of him um, I mean it's just going back to you know the whole premise of this thing is I guess one of the things I'm lucky now is that I basically get to to follow up all the things that I noodled around with as a kid so I watched huge amounts of Star Trek yeah, you were big into sci-fi, weren't you, and comics and things? Sci-fi, I still am. And in fact, we can I say, after years of pushing, Front Row is now going to be announcing the winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Fiction this year um, on one of my shows. So, you know, you bring your passion. I think yeah, it's always the thing, isn't it? What do you love? And then ideally, you might find a way to make it your job. So um, I have. And when I was um, a news reporter at the BBC, which is, I basically I joined the BBC graduate news trainee, and then I became a correspondent. And I there was a producer there called Stuart Buckman, who's retired now, and he's also a great Star Trek uh, fan. And we discovered that the, the very first major convention was going to be held at the Royal Albert Hall. This would have been 94 or 5. And so we pitched, like, we've got to do lots. Of, and we, we pitched a business angle on it, the business breakfast show. We pitched a special world service angle. We did an in-depth interview with Nichelle Nichols, who turned Uhura, and Marina Sirtis, who played um, Deanna Troy from Next Generation. It was about being the women of Trek. And we filmed them together chatting in the basement of Forbidden Planet before they were doing book signing. And uh, I've, in, I've interviewed Nichelle Nichols once since as well. But she's like, she's, I, my earrings, tell everyone this, that's, I wear them because of her. Oh, I see. Um, so she's, when, like you say, when, when, when a passion becomes uh, your job, then you've, you've really hit pay dirt, haven't you? Yeah. So, you know, we pitched, we made, I mean, that's an example of where probably in my head I was carrying around the idea that I would love to do something about Star Trek and how important it is one day. Yeah. And then you find a producer who's a kindred spirit and you pitch it and you, we got it onto the main news bulletins. It's so great when it all comes off. I mean, we've we've probably got to let you go in a bit so you can get Ridley Scotted up. But um, (laughs) I I want one more idea from you. I mean, obviously, you know, you're also an author. I think the last last book was Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know, wasn't it? Oh, I'm just trying to see. But I just thought, I wondered if that's another thing that you make. You, you, you know, whether in your in your sort of um, bunch of notebooks, you've got a lot of the beginnings of novels, a bit like the young Sherlock, I suppose. But yeah, well, there is there is a novel that I don't know if I'll ever write it because I'm really practical and I always think I went to the shop yesterday and there were so many new novels out there. And I thought, yeah, you know, so there's a there's a there's a factual book that I am trying to write that I've been working on and I've written a sample chapter of when I got pitch, um, which is to do with the culture wars and feminism and stuff. Mm. But we'll see. But the other idea, and I'll talk about it because I'm not sure I'll ever write it, but um, I went to York. Uh, I love York. My brother used to work for Andrew McIntosh and my sister used to work as a teacher at Fulford School. So I've had family mm. there for years. And I went oh, ages ago. Do you know the Castle Museum in York? It's got mm. this amazing, the, the reconstructed old streets. It's kind of like um, social history. Okay. And they had a special exhibition on the history of the Chinese community in York. Did you know no. that in the 50s, there was a huge Chinese community that moved there from Hong Kong and from um, mainland China. 
And I think it's to do with the aftermath of the civil war and the establishment of the kind of communist regime and everything. And a big community settled in York and they actually did run laundries, you know, kind of big commercial laundries. And there were all these lovely photographs of these children growing up, you know, who'd come as babies. So they were, you know, Yorkshire kids. And what it must have been like. And I knew nothing about it. And I just thought, and also the thing about York is it's the ultimate city of ghosts up there with Berlin, which is another city I've spent a lot of time in, where, um, you know, Guy Fawkes was born there. And there were some terrible witch trials. There's a woman who was pressed to death on one of the bridges, um, supposedly as a witch and stuff. And I just thought, I just thought of the idea of a children's novel about, from the point of view of a little girl, a little Chinese British girl growing up in 50s York and her parents work in the laundry and she encounters all these spirits from the past, you know, Guy Fawkes and this woman, Margaret, and the Civil War came through there. And so they, I did, if you've ever read this book called A Traveller in Time by Alison Utley, where it's a little girl in modern day who she keeps slipping back in time to 16th century it's the same house and the Babington plot, she gets caught up in the Babington plot to assassinate Elizabeth I. Um, and she can't control when she goes and she knows she can't really change the past. She falls in love with one of them and she knows that he's doomed. So I just thought something along those lines. I told my tutor at Oxford when I went back to visit, she said, promise me you'll write this book. And I said, uh, maybe. <laughs> so I've now said it again, I still haven't written it. But it's a new idea. Well, that's it's interesting. I think that it's it's percolated back up again. It suggests to me that this is becoming front and center of mind. Samira, it's just been a real pl- privilege and a, a a pleasure to to catch up with you and to chat um, and and to sort of truncate your day where you're talking to Nobel Prize winners and uh, eminent film directors. Um, and and the the other great thing about this is that people are always noting things down in notebooks, and so we can always do it again sometime down the line. Um, it's a, it's the gift that always gives. I've got a green I've got a green notebook full of ideas. I have I have notebooks which are separate to my diaries, which are just the notes that I'm making. But a lot of them are sort of ideas for um, interviews and things. So they're not always that exciting. Some of them are very recent. Yeah. But the ones I've dredged up for you are the sort of the the big ones that have been hanging around in the back of my. Well, this is. It, the way I see it is, it's like, you know, you've got that methane under the ice caps and you drill down and then you release it. That's what's happening here. So it, it, I, it's partially a service because it's, what, it's whatever's front, of, front and centre of your subconscious mind is probably what you should do next. So you're welcome. Oh, um, I, I can but, say, well, it's a real honour to be interviewed by you, Sean. Can't quite believe stop it. Stop it. Well, I mean, listen, we want that for the promo. We want that for the promo. Samir Ahmed saying that about me, Sean Keevenen. Um, Thank you for saying that. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Uh, give Ridley my love. Answer Paul. Great. Um, and thank you for being with us on the Cultural Cul-de-Sac today. My pleasure. Thank you to Samira Ahmed for being our guest this week. Um can't believe I'm saying the words. Just such a brilliant guest, uh, somebody I've admired for so many years. And uh, here she is on in Sean Keaton's creative cul-de-sac, as are you, um, because this is the part of the, what is it, podcast, where we wrap up with a few of your own um, ideas trapped in the permafrost of your mind and or notebook. This is from Paul Curry. Hi, Paul. He says, how... How about a world series of schoolyard games competition that would most definitely get picked up by Channel 5? Doesn't say much. Teams of middle-aged ordinary folk competing to be the best at hopscotch, tick-off ground or cocky rusty. Um, that kind of thing. British Bulldog, I, I'd suggest, to throw in there as well. Both of the latter essentially involve a bunch of kids running from one end of the playground to the other whilst some hard kids in the middle or PE teachers try to either strike them with their fists or medicine balls. Very televisual. I agree with Paul. He continues, People could be dressed up in silly costumes, a bit like it's a knockout, with modern-day Eddie Waring David Vine types providing the commentary. Hello. Giant one bar for the eventual winners, handed over by Zamo from Grange Hill. It's actually a good idea. And a bit of zoological exploitation here from Mark and Serena. They use the Discord, so that says a lot. Hey, Keevney and team. Um, I want to send you my oft-pondered idea about attaching a 12-volt dynamo to a hamster wheel. It would come in handy to charge my narrowboat batteries when the sun isn't doing its job through the solar panels. It may not be considered vegan, but if they're kept well, apparently, they run all night in those things, so you'd wake up with a fully charged battery. Um, I'm not sure what the RSPCA would say about that, but 
I like it. And uh, finally, a couple here. This is one. This is one from Stephen, who's suggesting a radio-based version of a very famous word game that has currently has become very popular recently. Uh, I'm calling it Burble, where listeners send in random letters, one each, and at the end, no word is made, but nevertheless, it serves as a pleasant way to spend a few moments on a Friday, a bit like word number wang. Feel free to uh, feed this idea into the compost pile. And Dawn finally says, I'm addicted to Channel 4 shows. Whilst watching Celebrity Hunted tonight, it occurred to me, why don't the hunters just give up and leave the so-called celebs on the run out in the wild to hopefully turn feral? I think it could really take off. I actually love that idea. Reminds me of that Bill Hicks line, isn't it? Hunting and killing Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, It's that kind of vibe, isn't it? Thank you very much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the series. There'll be another one next week with another phenomenal guest and hopefully some of your suggestions in the slightly on the more whimsical piss-takery side, these ones. But if you seriously, if you've got, I don't know, an invention, uh, the start of a novel, some lyrics, I don't know, whatever it is, send it to us, Sean's Creative Cul-de-Sac at gmail.com and you may get inserted into my end, okay? Uh, uh, please remember to subscribe if you haven't already because all the outs and I'll see you next week even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.